Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Susan David is one of the world's leading management thinkers and an award-winning Harvard Medical School psychologist. Her number one Wall Street Journal best-selling book titled Emotional Agility is based on the concept Harvard Business Review heralded as a management idea of the year. And she's the winner of a Thinker 50 Breakthrough Idea Award, which describes the psychological skills critical to thriving in times of complexity and change. Hey, and we definitely live in a time of complexity and change, to say the least. She's a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and is a sought-after keynote speaker and consultant with clients that include the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, Google, and Microsoft. Susan, welcome. I'm delighted to be with you. So I can't think of a more timely and relevant topic and guest, emotional agility. I'm like, do we need emotional agility right now? I kind of think it's essential. So let's start there. What is emotional agility and why is it so critical right now? Well, I'll start off with a short definition and then I'll give a longer definition. The short definition is that emotional agility is the essential skill set that allows us to be healthy with ourselves. Our thoughts, you know, we all have many different thoughts every day about different things. Our emotions and also the stories that we tell ourselves, stories about whether we're good enough, what kind of jobs we deserve, what world we live in. Uh, So being healthy with our thoughts, emotions and our stories in a way that allows us to uh, both connect with them compassionately and curiously, but also that engages us in taking active values aligned steps. So ultimately what we're doing is we're being healthy with ourselves so that we can be healthy in the world. And you talk about the world right now. It is uncertain. It is unpredictable. Uh, Where does emotional agility come in? in the world we live in today, which is changing by the minute. So I think that this skill set firstly is essential in so-called normal times, but of course, even more so today. My life's work is really focused on one key question, and it's this. What does it take internally in the way we deal with ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories that help us to thrive in an increasingly fragile and fraught world? Because what we know is that as human beings, how we deal with our inner worlds drives everything. The way we deal with ourselves impacts on how we come to our relationships, the way we parent, how we love, how we build community, and how we lead. And we have so many narratives that exist in society about how we should or shouldn't deal with these difficult emotions. You know, what do I mean here? So we might, uh, your listeners might every day have thoughts like, you know, I'm not good enough. Uh, There's no point in even trying. Uh, I would really love that job, but there's no way that I'm going to get it. So I'm not going to put my hand up for it. So these are the kind of thoughts we have. We have emotions. We have emotions like fear, anxiety, stress, Um, anger is, you know, very, uh, much being experienced at the moment. So we have these emotions. And then we also have stories. And of course, some of our stories were written on our mental chalkboards when we were in, 
you know, grade three or when we were four or five years old. These stories are stories about who we are, whether we're creative or not creative, what kind of love we deserve, what kind of life we deserve. So we all have these. These are normal ways that we help to make sense of our world. And then we get to the reality, which is that how we interact with these thoughts, emotions, and stories, whether we believe them, whether we let them take us away from being the people we want to be, can in real ways impact on how we live. So for instance, uh, we live in a world of uncertainty right now, and people can very often find themselves being victimized by their news feeds, what a politician is saying or isn't saying. Uh, people might be in situations where their job world is imperfect, and they might be stuck in motions of kind of cynicism with us. And all of this can stop us from being the best of who we are. So I can definitely break down the components of emotional agility in more detail if that's helpful. But the overview is that it's about being psychologically healthy so that we can be healthy in the world and in how we interact with the world. Well, I, I would love if you broke them down. I could tell I, we have a smart audience. You're like, give me more. Break them down. Break them break down, them please. Down, break them down. So the first aspect of this is, of course, we live in a society where almost everywhere you turn on social media, everywhere else is talking about things like, you know, be happy, chase happiness, positive vibes only, uh, you know, what you think is what you create. If you imagine your dreams coming true, your dreams will simply come true. And of course, it's not that simple. So what we know, for instance, is that when people are having difficult feelings, as an example, you know, if you're feeling anxious or if you're feeling angry, that you can try to push away that anger or that anxiety and try to just be positive, but it doesn't work. So there's a profoundly powerful uh, psychological effect that we know of called amplification. And amplification is something that all of your listeners will have experienced. So you've got a delicious piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator. You're trying to be healthy. You're trying not to think about that delicious piece of chocolate cake in the refrigerator. The more you try not to think about it, the greater its hold on you. The piece of cake is calling you and wanting you to eat it, and that becomes your focus. We've all had this. Now, if you expand this out, we know that this applies to our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories as well. That when I've looked at this in my research, in my work, what I've found is that so often, uh, instead of just noticing what we are feeling in ways that are compassionate, okay, gee, you know, I'm feeling angry today, or gee, you know, this is stressful, or I'm feeling a bit anxious here. Instead of being compassionate with ourselves, what we tend to do is, uh, you know, conspired against by this narrative of happiness is we'll often say, well, I should just be grateful for, for what I've got or let me just think positive or, uh, you know, many people would give their eye teeth to have my job. Therefore, I should just get on with it. So what we often do with our difficult thoughts, emotions and stories is we do what I call um, bottling. And bottling is basically where we, instead of showing up to our emotions with compassion, 
Instead, what we do is we push them aside in the service of forced positivity or gratitude or whatever else we want to call it, but we push them aside. And what happens when we do this is there is this amplification effect that, you know, internal pain doesn't just go away because we choose to ignore it. Uh, Internal pain is something that we need to actually face into. And when I talk about internal pain, it could be an internal pain of a daily experience. So you're unhappy in your job or you're in a relationship that you're struggling with right now. Or internal pain can even be a longer-term experience. So it doesn't just go away because we push it aside. So, you know, listeners might say, okay, well, then what do I need to do with it? Do I need to sit with it? Do I need to, you know, what do I need to do? But what's really fascinating is that the opposite of uh, bottling is brooding. And brooding is where we sit with the emotion and we say, this is terrible. You know, why am I feeling what I feel? This is awful. I wish I didn't feel this. And we're so stuck in our emotion. Now, what's interesting is that even though bottling, which is basically pushing emotion aside and brooding, getting almost stuck in the emotion looks so different, there is a real cost to our mental health and well-being and to our ability to solve the issue that we're facing. So I'll explore a little bit about what I mean like that. So the first thing we know is that people who have a tendency to either push aside their difficult emotions or to get stuck in those difficult emotions have over time lower levels of mental health, high levels of depression, anxiety, uh, you know, difficulty just in feeling okay with oneself. The second aspect is that when you are bottling emotions, when you're pushing them aside, there's actually a known cost to our interpersonal relationships. If you imagine a little bit, bottling is almost like holding a really heavy stack of books right away from you and pretending, you know, that they they on things that you want to touch, but you've got to carry them and you're carrying them really far away. And over time, your hands get really tired and you so resourced by trying to hold these things away from you that it's difficult to actually see what's in front of you. It's difficult to engage with your partner, to be vulnerable, uh, you know, to connect with that person because there's a huge amount of mental energy that's focused on pushing stuff away. But by the same token, if you are brooding, it's almost like hugging those books so closely to your chest, hugging those emotions that you can't see your child, you can't see the pain in another person. And so we know that uh, brooding and bottling both have an impact on interpersonal relationships. And then last, I've already alluded to this, but these kinds of ways of dealing with our difficult experiences take mental resources. And those mental resources then actually stop us from being able to problem solve. So if someone's stuck in their jobs and they're feeling frustrated in their jobs and they say, well, at least I'm grateful to have a job, so I'm going to push this aside, that actually takes cognitive resource and that cognitive resource then stops you from being able to say, right, what do I need to do in this situation? How can I navigate it? How can I start developing the skills that might 
move me forward, maybe not away from this job right now, but move me forward in a way that's productive. So these are the ways that people typically deal with their emotions. And in my research, I found that around a third of us at least treat our normal, natural human experiences like anger, sadness, even grief as being good or bad, positive or negative, and they try to kind of get rid of them almost in a way that they are seen as not legitimate. And that is uh, completely the opposite of emotional agility, which I can speak to a little bit more. Yeah, so how do we find that delicate balance of you know, sitting, recognizing that anger, that sadness, that grief, um, and, and also coming out on the other side and not letting it, letting it overtake us. And, and I think you know, we, we all love the power of gratitude here, but it, it, it's got to be in the proper dose. And how, how do we find that balance between sitting, you know, being uncomfortable, being comfortable with being uncomfortable? So this is really powerful. It's a really important question. Um, what people often do is instead of being emotionally agile, they are emotionally rigid. And of course, brooding and bottling are core signs of rigidity. It's a way of being that's a default way of being. And it's rigid because it's, it's not actually responding to the world as it is right now. So when we rigid, you know, I always allude to or love that, you know, incredibly beautiful Viktor Frankl idea. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's often used and spoken to, but I think it's so powerful in this context because, of course, Viktor Frankl survived the Nazi death camps. And he describes this, you know, incredibly profound idea between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. When we are hooked, when we are emotionally inagile or rigid, there's no space between stimulus and response. So I feel sad. Uh, I'm just going to shut down. I'm being undermined in this meeting. There's no point in talking. Uh, my husband's starting in on the finances. I'm going to leave the room. Or, you know, I have the intention, the value of being present and connected with my children, but I feel really stressed. And so I've got this precious time with them at the dinner table each night, but I bring my phone to the dinner table. You know, so I've got this stimulus, which is the stress. I've got the response, which is bringing my phone to the dinner table. And there's no space in any of those contexts that I've described to bring other parts of yourself forward. You know, what do I mean by other parts? Uh, our emotions are really important. Um, they data, they help us to understand what we care about, and we'll explore that a bit later. But they're not directives. You know, just because I feel upset doesn't mean I need to shut down. Uh, just because I feel that there's no point in even trying in my job doesn't mean there's no point in even trying in my job. And so what we're trying to do with emotional agility is develop a skill set that allows us to bring other parts of ourselves forward. What are those parts? Those parts are um, our wisdom. You know, all of us, when we 
when we strip away the busy mind, the judgy, difficult, getting stuck in parts of ourselves, when we strip this away, all of us have, you know, wisdom, like a sense of centeredness and breathing and connectedness. Uh, we are able to open ourselves to our values. Who do we want to be in this situation? We able to open ourselves up to choices. How can I, instead of reacting here, how can I respond in a way that's intentional and thoughtful? So what is the balance? How do we start doing this? Uh, the first aspect of this is in my book, Emotional Agility, what I call a showing up. And really what I mean by showing up to our thoughts, our emotions, and our experiences is firstly recognizing that there's nothing inherently wrong in any of these thoughts, emotions, and stories. So again, you know, we live in a world that would have us believe that if we feel things that are difficult, then we're going to attract difficult things to our lives or that, um, you know, we've become toxic people that other people are going to like do away with. You know, there's this, there's all of this kind of meme stuff that floats around social media about just being positive. And, you know, being positive has become a new form of moral correctness. You know, to be frank, um, both in our social media feeds, but if we think about someone who's experiencing cancer, you know, probably one of the most difficult face-to-face coming to self moments of one's life. And yet what is our narrative around cancer? Stay positive, just stay positive. And what that does is it takes people away from being able to actually be with themselves in ways that are meaningful and connected. So the first way that we kind of move beyond either bottling or brooding into the space of health with ourselves is what I call showing up. And what is showing up? Showing up is, at its essence, doing away with this internal tug of war about whether what we're feeling is good or bad, positive, negative, should or shouldn't be felt. And instead, it's facing into ourselves with gentle acceptance. You know, gentle acceptance is probably the most powerful way we can be with ourselves. What do I mean by gentle acceptance? If you walk outside and it's raining, gentle acceptance is the equivalent of saying, gee, it's raining. Not gentle acceptance is saying, gee, it's raining and I wish it wouldn't rain today. Why does it always rain every time I want to, you know, every time I think I'm getting ahead, it starts what we're doing here is we're starting to engage in a tug of war with ourselves. And so a very important part of emotional agility is it is what it is. I feel what I feel. And being able to show up to that in a way that's kind and compassionate to yourself is extraordinarily powerful. Because here's a paradox. The paradox is that the prerequisite to change is acceptance. It's only when we accept what currently is, whether it's a relationship that isn't working out or a friendship that you feel just isn't happening any longer or 
a job that you see is going nowhere. It's only when we are able to face into ourselves with acceptance that we are then able to galvanize our internal resources to move forward and make change. So that is the first aspect of emotional agility. So with regards to, you know, I use cancer as an example, you know, someone gets bad health news, whether it's cancer or, or something else, you know, so someone gets bad news, you know, on one hand, you can't just say, all right, this is terrible. I'm going to, you know, I'm going downhill, I'm going to die, whatever it may be, or I'll never be the same. But so is it about, okay, this, this, whatever the diagnosis is, or, you know, this sucks, it's terrible. I'm going to sit with that. I'm angry. But then, okay, I'm going to figure out how to get through this. And is there a third part about so, letting go and like whatever happens, happens? I, I, I surrender, like, because you, you can't just mire in the crap. You have to move forward. And at the same time, you have to let, let go to some degree. Absolutely. So there's, they're, they're very important parts to this. Um, you know, maybe I can share a personal story about this and then describe some of the strategies that we know are helpful. So when I was uh, around 15 years old, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer and he died. I talk about in my TED talk, he, he died on a Friday. And I recall on the Monday, my mother coming to me and saying to me that she thought we should go to school because keeping on doing things in a normal way would be really helpful to us. And so I went to school and, you know, I recall those months going from, you know, May to July to September to November. And people would ask me how I was doing. And I would say to them, I'm okay. You know, I'm okay. I became the master of being okay because in a world that seems to value relentless positivity, uh, we all seem to, you know, develop this narrative of it's okay. I'm the master of being okay. But, you know, in truth, back home, our family was struggling. Um, my father had died. My mother had lost the love of her life. She was raising three children under the age of, you know, 17 years old. Um, my father hadn't been able to keep his small business going during his illness and the creditors were knocking. And I, as a child, started to feel emotionally and financially ravaged. Um, you know, and I started to spiral down. And like so many young girls, for me, that took the form of binging and purging. You know, this idea of refusing to almost accept the full weight of my grief. And I remember this English teacher, a few months after my father died, she handed out these blank notebooks to the class. And she said, write, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And it was this incredibly powerful invitation to show up to what it was that I was experiencing. And as it turned out, that experience of writing what I was feeling and actually showing up to my difficult emotions became the cornerstone not only of my resilience and well-being longer term, but it also shaped my entire career because I became aware of all of these narratives that we have about it's okay, just be okay, just be positive, and how what they do is they lead people into fakery with themselves and fakery with others where there's this narrative of it's okay, but actually it's not okay. So 
how do we then toe the line? Like, how do we kind of balance all of this to your question? The first is that you cannot begin to do any sort of letting go, moving forward, moving on until you've shown up to what is, until you've shown up to what is. What does that mean? It's the gentle acceptance that I spoke about earlier. It's compassion. It's compassion. You know, we live in a world that would have us believe that we are in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition where, you know, right now we're in the midst of COVID and even in the shadow of illness and death and uncertainty, there is this pressure to achieve. You know, that people are saying things like, if you don't use this opportunity to, you know, write your screenplay, then it's not that you didn't lack the time, it's that you're lazy. And it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating that in the context of, of, of uncertainty and death, there is this pressure to be self-critical. So showing up is about acceptance. It's about self-compassion. Because we know that when people are self-compassionate, when they have their own backs, when they say to themselves, if things don't work out, I will still care for myself. When they have a difficult day and they don't beat themselves up, instead they take themselves in their arms and, and care for themselves and nurture themselves. When we do this, this is what creates the resource that allows any of the other moving on, moving through, letting go, that can happen. So it's acceptance, it's compassion. But beyond that, our emotions contain data about the things that we care about. There is this incredibly fascinating narrative about emotions that seem to establish emotions as good or bad positive or negative. You know, the positive emotions are joy and happiness, and the so-called bad emotions are anger or sadness or grief. And in my work on emotional agility, I completely push back at this. I um, challenge this in a way that is not just saying, oh, why don't you see if you can tolerate your difficult emotions? But actually, your difficult emotions contain signposts to the things that you care about. We tend not to have strong emotions about stuff that doesn't matter to us. So if you feel angry right now, that anger might be a signpost that you value equity and fairness and justice. That anger is pointing you towards your values. If you feel sad, that sadness in a cancer diagnosis might be a signpost that you value relationship. And it's a signpost that you can move forward in the context of that. So showing up is the first part of that, but it also involves starting to say to yourself, what is this emotion signaling to me about what I care about? And then there are other parts of it as well, which we can talk about, but, but, that's the most important start. So you have this uh, this great emotional agility pyramid of needs. Can you, can you walk us through that? Yeah, 
So I really started to develop this pyramid of needs uh, in the context of these challenges that we're all facing right now. And it's really drawn from my work on emotional agility. And the first part of the pyramid is gentle acceptance. Uh, the second part of it is this idea of self-compassion uh, that, that is really fundamental. Another part of it is, uh, you know, recognizing that pockets of routine are profoundly important. When people feel, uh, you know, so out of control, and of course I think, you know, the very interesting thing with COVID is that it can lead us to feel that we are out of control and that we've lost control. But, you know, the reality is, is that as human beings, we didn't have control to begin with. You know, control control is an illusion. Um, the, the reality is that life is both beautiful and fragile, uh, that we are healthy until a diagnosis brings us to our knees, that the only certainty is uncertainty. And so that fragility can often lead us to feel very out of our depth. And we know that as human beings, some fundamental pockets of routine, and these include things like, um, you know, taking care of our sleep, taking care of, you know, nutritional choices. These are profoundly important because from a psychological resource perspective, there's this wonderful work done by Lisa Feldman Barrett who talks about, you know, our body resources and that it's very difficult actually figuring out what to do in your job or your relationship or, or in any other part of your life if you are completely exhausted. So pockets of routine is really important. Uh, another aspect of this pyramid is tough emotions. Tough emotions are expected Tough emotions are expected. Um, you know, we don't get to have a meaningful career. We don't get to raise a family or leave the world a better place without stress and discomfort. Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. So the only way that we can develop greater levels of emotional agility is to move beyond the idea that emotions are good or bad and to move into the space of gentle acceptance. But I think what you were pointing to earlier with, well, like, how do we do it? How do we do it? Where this is at is now this next st uh, set of uh, processes that I think is really important. You know, these first things that I've been speaking about have been this thing of showing up. Um, but of course, just because I feel guilty as a parent doesn't mean that I'm a bad parent, okay? Just because I feel undermined in a meeting doesn't mean that I need to now leave my job. Our emotions are data that signpost what's important to us, but they are not directives. You know, we don't need to obey our emotions. We own our emotions. They don't own us. So what are some strategies when you're feeling stuck or hooked, uh, when you either, you know, pushing your emotions aside or when you're feeling, uh, you know, almost incapacitated by your emotions that help us to move forward? So there are a couple of things that I think are, uh, you know, very helpful. 
And these are all evidence-based, science-based strategies. The first is what I alluded to earlier with this teacher. Uh, you know, she said, write. She said, tell the truth. Write like no one's reading. There's this beautiful body of research on expressive writing. And what expressive writing basically looks at is a very simple paradigm. Imagine you invited people to either write about arbitrary things, to-do lists or cars passing on the street. Or what you did is you asked them to spend 20 minutes a day for three days writing about something that's really challenging for them right now. It could be a job loss or it could be injustice that they've experienced. In some of these experiments, people have written about things like, um, you know, a divorce or a trauma or a rape. People get to write about anything that feels emotionally salient. And they write for 20 minutes a day for three days. That's all they do. 20 minutes a day for three days. And after the experiment, uh, we can look at what is the power of putting language to experience. And what we find is really powerful, which is that the individuals who are asked to write about arbitrary things don't do better in any way. The individuals who are asked to write about difficult experiences, and it could even be a difficult positive experience. It could be, you know, you've been promoted and you've got a new opportunity, but it's also scary. What we find is that individuals who write for 20 minutes a day for three days about these difficult experiences, six months later, are doing better psychologically. They've got their goals in place. They are you know, if they were writing about a job loss, they're more likely to have been rehired. So what am I talking about here? What I'm talking about is the second process in emotional agility, which is what I call stepping out. The first part is showing up. The second part is stepping out. And stepping out is this idea that you're acknowledging your emotions, you're understanding them, you're trying to make sense of them, you're observing them, you're gleaning from them what might be important but you're not allowing them to call the shots. And so one way that we can do this is by putting language around our experiences. And I'll give you a very quick example of what this looks like. Imagine someone comes home or is at home and is feeling stressed. Very often, what will we say? We'll say, I feel stressed. I feel stressed. I feel stressed. I feel stressed. This is terrible. The situation's terrible. I feel stressed. So what we're doing here is the, the person is describing a very big experience with a very big, broad label, which is, I am stressed. Okay? But there is a world of difference between stress and disappointment. Hmm. Stress and I'm exhausted. Stress and that knowing, knowing feeling of I'm in the wrong job or the wrong career. When you label your emotion as stress or when you use, you know, for someone it might be busy, for someone it might be something else. When you've got this go-to big label to describe what you're feeling, it actually doesn't help you. 
So what I've found in my work is, and there have been many other pieces of work that have supported this, is that getting granular about what it is that you're feeling is really powerful. When you say to yourself, what is this thing I'm calling stress? What are two other options here? And you become more granular in labeling your emotion. It does something incredible, which is it allows you to start saying, what is the cause of your emotion? And it also starts helping you to recognize what it is you need to put in place to deal with that. So now no longer are you stuck in, I am stressed. Now you are, I am exhausted. I need greater levels of self-care. I am feeling overwhelmed. I need to call on my team for support. Okay. Very different from just stress. So what you're now doing is you're now showing up to the emotion, but you're using strategies. And this is one example. I can share some others that help us to observe the emotion in a way that's helpful so we can now move on from it. It kind of feels like we mislabel stress quite a bit. We we mislabel stress. We mislabel, um, I mean, I think stress is the most common one. Um, anger is another. You know, anger is another where often people will say, you know, I'm, I'm just angry. But actually what's going on for them is I feel rejected mm. or I'm disappointed or, you know, I'm concerned. I actually interestingly had a client many years ago who I became friends with and he used to use the word angry. He used to say, you know, everything was, everyone was angry and he was in a new role and he would describe his team as being angry. And he would say, you know, I'm just angry because I've been promoted into this, into this role but if they didn't believe in me, why they? Why did they promote me? And so I started saying to him, you know, what else could be going on other than anger? And it was so fascinating because he started to say to me, actually, maybe what I'm calling anger in the team is actually mistrust. Hmm. That they had a previous bad experience and maybe it's mistrust. And maybe what I'm calling in myself anger is actually insecurity. Okay. And it was so interesting because a couple of months later, I was very good friends with him and I went out for dinner with him and his wife. And his wife said to me that this simple strategy had completely changed their relationship because he would come home from work and he would say to her, it seems like you're angry. And she would say, I'm not angry. I just feel unseen. Or I'm not angry. I just am really tired. And having greater levels of nuance in the words that they were using then completely shifted the dynamic because it helps them to be able to say, what is the thing that I need to do here that can help me to move this forward in a way that feels values connected? 
I think that's so important because we all do it with regards to angry and stressed. I find myself doing it, but we all do it. We use those terms. They're big catch-alls and you're not getting to the root cause. It's, it's so, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And, you know, think of a child, think of a child who comes home from school and who says, you know, mommy, I'm so angry because Jack wouldn't play with me today. Okay. And as a parent, you then feel angry. Okay. Because you didn't want your child to be in that situation. But actually what's going on for that child, that child feels hurt, okay? And if instead of jumping onto the anger bandwagon, even with good intentions, if instead we can show up to the child's sadness and we can start saying to the child, um, you know, that sounds like, it sounds like you're angry and it sounds like that's a really hurtful place to be. What you're doing again is you're showing up to the child. Then stepping out, which is about starting to label, starting to observe, you know, what is it that you're feeling? We know that children as young as two and three years old, when they're helped to label their emotions more accurately, that literally in longitudinal studies, 10, 20, 30 years down the track, children who have greater levels of the ability to label their emotions accurately have better capacity to self-regulate, to delay gratification, have higher levels of mental health and well-being. And you can see how this plays out because when your child's 16 years old and someone says, gee, I've got this great idea, you know, why don't we let the air out of the principal's, you know, car tires, the child who is able to discern, "Uh, I feel tempted, but there's this feeling inside of me that is a bit of guilt or a bit of disconnect, that child is then able to move forward in a way that isn't being swept along by the moment. And then the third thing that you can do with your child is you can say to your child, and this moves us to the third part of the model of emotional agility, which is walking your why. We can start saying to the child, I'm showing up to your sadness. I'm helping you understand that what you're calling angry is actually sadness. Walking your why is starting to help your child to say what is important to you. You know, if you feel guilt as a parent, that guilt is a signpost that you value connectedness Mm. and presence and that maybe you've got too little of that in your life right now. If you feel anger, again, you know, justice and equity. If your child feels sad because they've been rejected at school. What a beautiful conversation about it seems like friendship is important to you. How do you want to be a friend? What does being a good friend look like? How can you be a friend in your interactions? You know, what you're starting to do there is you're starting to move from patching up the child's immediate experience into helping them to develop their values, their character and their moral compass. And that ultimately is what's going to help them to thrive in a world that is uncertain. I love that. And as, as a parent of a three and a half year old girl and a one year old girl, uh, you know, you do, you do struggle, you know, when you see them hurt, you get hurt and and you want to make it better, but that's not the right approach. It's about 
really helping them tune in to what's going on and articulate what's going on and what they're feeling is what you're saying. If we could do one thing, if that's one message for a parent out there, it, it's try to help them identify that emotion and label it correctly. It's so, so profoundly important. Um, I, I grew up in South Africa and in South Africa, there's this beautiful Zulu greeting. Uh, I, I, I mentioned it in my TED talk because it's just so wonderful. It's You hear it every day on the streets and it's, Sawabona, Sawabona, Yebo, Sawabona. And it basically means hello. But there's a beautiful and powerful intention behind the word because Sawabona literally translated means I see you. And by seeing you, I bring you into being. And really, my work on emotional agility asks what does it take in the way we see ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories that help us to thrive. And by the same token, we can sawabona our children. We can sawabona our partner, our loved ones. We can sawabona our colleagues who are hurting and stressed. And when we do that, we completely change our capacity to be in the world where we are now being uh, responsive rather than reactive. Uh, intentional and values connected and we are able to bring the best of ourselves forward in how we love and live so we talked about kids what about men and women how are men and women different with regards to reacting to their emotions what's interesting I, i don't like to play too much into gender differences because what you find when you look at gender differences is there's as much within group variability as there is across group variability. So for instance, um, the definitely in the research, there is a general trend showing that men tend to uh, bottle their emotions more, push them aside, compartmentalize, um, are more likely to say things like, you know, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. And then five years later, they're still in the same job, still unhappy in the same job because they haven't been able to connect with their emotions as data, that these emotions are really helpful. So there is a general uh, tendency for men to bottle more. There is a general tendency for women to brood more, to get more stuck in their emotions. And talking about parenting, there's even some research showing that parents tend to almost encourage this in their boys versus girls. So parents tend to more likely say to boys, what did you do today? Much more focused on outcome and solution and tend to, with their girls, be much more focused on how did you feel today? What was your day like? And so what we're starting to do then is we're starting to, you know, encourage what are called display rules. Uh, display rules are the kind of rules that we have in society about what emotions are okay or what becomes gendered around emotions. So there is some research showing that that men tend to do more uh, bottling, that women tend to do more brooding or more what is often called co-brooding. Co-brooding is when you go out with your girlfriend or have a Zoom drink with her and you have a big fat bitch 
about, you know, your mother-in-law or your husband. And, you know, what's really interesting is that co-brooding is defined by the fact that you basically are kind of stuck in the emotion with someone else. So you're not moving to insight. You're not moving to labeling. You're not moving to outcome. You're just stuck in the emotion. And what's interesting is that when you've done co-brooding is you're, you're more likely to come back to the situation that you've moaned about. Misery loves company. And, and actually be worse <laughs> in that situation. So you're more likely to be worse. You feel good about the girlfriend that you've moaned with because she gets you, but your actual behaviors are worse and there's a cost to your mental health and well-being. So there definitely are these kind of gender differences that start showing up. But the reason that I don't like to make too much of them is because you can find, you know, of course, anyone who bottles, who broods, or who even flips from one to the other. And this is why emotional agility is really a skill set that is, um, you know, fundamental for everyone. So uh, I want to close with the question of, okay, I think a lot of people listening are, are on board with emotional agility. A, they need to pick up your book. It's a must-read book. But also, like, what's, like, the one thing must have, must do? I'm ready to start flexing my, uh, my muscles here. How do I start exercising um, immediately? Because this, this takes work. It does take work. So I'll give you two. I'll give you one super quick uh, practice and one super quick question. The super quick practice is... Instead of saying, I am, when you're feeling something, you say, I am sad, I am angry, I am stressed, I am disappointed, I am being undermined. When you say, I am, you can see that what you're doing is you are defining yourself by your emotion, okay? I am, all of me, 100% of me, there's no space for anything else. But you are not your emotion. Your emotion is a data source that is really important, but you are not defined by your emotion. So instead of saying, I am, start noticing your thought, your emotion, your feeling, your story for what it is. It's a thought, an emotion, a feeling, a story. It's not a fact. Okay. So instead of I am sad, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I am being undermined. I'm noticing the thought that I'm being undermined. I'm not good enough. I'm noticing that this is my I'm not good enough story. When you do this, you start creating critical space between yourself and the emotion so that you can start bringing other parts of yourself. You can start saying, so who do I want to be here? You know, it's very, it's, it's when we say I am, it's almost as if there's a, there's a sky filled with clouds and you've become the cloud. You know, the cloud is sad and you are the cloud, but you are not the cloud. You are the sky. You know, you, you are big enough to have many different emotions and values and ways of being. But when we get stuck in our emotion, we forget that. So this strategy of just noticing your thought, your emotion, your feeling for what it is, helps you to step out of it and to become the sky. Um, the question that I would invite is that 
in a context where so much feels out of control, we can still choose how we respond. We can still choose how we connect. Uh, we can still recognize that, for instance, social distancing is not the same as emotional distancing and that meaningful relationships are important. So when you're feeling a difficult emotion, start saying to yourself, what is this emotion telling me about what I need here? You know, what is this emotion telling me about what's important? And how can I start moving in the direction of that? So I'll give loneliness as an example. A lot of people are describing how they're feeling lonely, that there's social distancing and that they're feeling lonely. So we can get stuck in that loneliness. But if you imagine writing on a piece of paper the word lonely, and then on the other side, you turn the piece of paper over and you say to yourself, what values is loneliness pointing to? What is it signaling to me about what's important here? Loneliness might actually be signaling a yearning for connection. Or the fact that even in the midst of a relationship, you can still be lonely. People can be lonely in a crowd because loneliness, by definition, is a lack of meaningful connection. So you can be married for 25 years and be lonely in that relationship because you're no longer expanding the, the level of depth and breadth of how you know that person. So you flip the lonely paper over and it might be yearning for connection, needing depth, needing intimacy. And that's really powerful. That's really powerful. And so what I would suggest as a kind of question to ask yourself is, what is my emotion telling me? What is the value that it's signaling? And, you know, really what I would end with is saying, you know, even in the midst of challenge, there's one thing that never gets taken away from us, and it's who do we choose to be? You know, who do we choose to be? Even in the midst of this challenge, who do I choose to be? But we can only choose to be something else when we know what's being signaled to us of how we need to move forward. And that's the combination of showing up to our difficult emotions, stepping out of them so we can understand what they're signaling, and then seeing how we can move in active ways towards our values, whether that's picking up a telephone, whether that's letting your guard down a little bit with your partner, uh, whether it's reaching out to someone, they're things that we can do in meaningful ways that can help us. Amen to that. Susan, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for connecting with me. I so appreciate it. Mm -hmm.